Well, the just a couple of um, good news bits from this morning. It looks like the live stream actually went off well. Um, so there were some people that were not here that were able to watch it. Brett, I, I saw your comment on there. Um, so we're, we're thankful for that. We're going to continue experimenting with that. I think, the, I think the biggest challenge is not so much the video, but the audio, because the audio kind of sound a little bit cavernous. And uh, we, we probably need to find a way to hook that up directly to one of the uh, audio feeds or maybe put a special mic up there that connects uh, to that device. But I think that works well, and that might be something that we explore um, doing going forward, especially for uh, members of the church who are shut-ins, um, but also for this uh, continuing situation. And, and by the way, I don't know if you saw it, but <clears throat> sometime, I think it was um, today, we just saw the news hit today that... Uh, uh, Governor Newsom has um, requested that everyone over the age of 65 um, not leave home, basically. All right. Oh, now, go. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I just want you to, to be aware of that. Um, <laughs> yes. What's that? All right, right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, call, call, call your boss and let him know that Gavin Newsom told me not to come to work. <laughs> yeah, so that, uh, that, that happened today. And, and there's just, and just to address um, the, the headlines and the concerns, there's a lot of just conflicting information going on out there. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of people that um, are obviously in a panic mode, and we see that. There's a lot of people that said the opposite, made the opposite mistake, and said this is a complete hoax. Um, I don't think it's a hoax. I, I think th this is real. Um, the level, the, the severity, though, is, um, is tough to gauge. And, uh, and some of the estimates that people are throwing out there in terms of what's going to happen to the U.S., uh, I mean, that hasn't even happened in the entire globe. I mean, some of the numbers that I'm saying, oh, U.S. is going to have, like, this many people infected, when really all across the globe we haven't had that many people infected. So, you know, I guess we're learning about the situation um, as we go. Uh, but uh, I'm continuing to receive um, reports that say both ways, that this is – not nearly as bad, and some people that say that this is actually much worse um, than what people have been saying. So, you know, I, I, I put it, I think of it this way. Um, if we're going to be brought home with our Lord Jesus Christ, I would rather be brought home having finished my days with the church. Amen. That's, just, that's just my feeling. Um, I, I'd much rather be it that way than to be in seclusion and, and, and kind of locked out uh, from, from the world. Um, because I, I think while it's possible that we may have to go to streaming in the future if you know if the restrictions get even tighter um, we may have to go to, to streaming but uh, being at church together with the saints um, is there's no replacement for that um, you, you can you can watch it from home you can watch the entire service uh, but I'd, I I know in the nature of most people when they watch the service they're gonna be doing other things at the same time you know they're, they're gonna be listening and you know on their phone and reading the the news and all that stuff at the same time and, and there's not even there's a lack of engagement there and then plus um, as we're not engaged with each other we don't know what's going on in each other's lives you know how do we know exactly how to pray for each other you, you know even in the Sunday school classes you guys meet together and, and go through these lessons you learn a lot about each other just from the discussions you know you're growing together and that's the whole point of this church we're growing together in Christ and it's it's um, it's a lot harder to do that uh, remotely but you know we'll we'll see where the Lord takes this and uh, I know for the church that I came from, Grace Community Church, and every Sunday they've got, um, they've got like around 8,000 people um, total that show up. So for them, they, you know, they, um, if they didn't comply, it would have been very obvious that they were um, standing in opposition to the, the, the governor's mandate. So they did go online. 
Um, but one of the questions that's kind of lingering is like, okay, if, if this continues on for weeks and weeks and months and months, you know, at what point uh, do we as the church change our stance in terms of complying? And that's, you know, and that's not a, that's not an easy question to answer. And I also don't, um, I certainly don't criticize churches that have chosen to, to go online and stream. Everyone has to make their own decision based upon, you know, what their unique situation is. You know, if they think that they're providing, you know, if, if in their conscience they think they're actually putting their people at grave risk by being with one another, then they have to make those decisions that they think are best. You know, um, and uh, certainly for any of people, any of the people in our church and anyone here, if you guys are convicted to, to be home because, you know, whether you're, you, you know, you're, um, kind of compromising your immune system, um, you know, you're sensitive to these kinds of things, or if you've been sick or been around someone who's sick, um, you know, I, I certainly don't fault that. And, uh, and even if you don't fit into any of those categories, but feel that you just want to be safe by being home, you know, that's that I don't, you know, I'm not going to rebuke you and excommunicate you or anything like that. You know, we're, you know, I want, um, you, you know, I, I want you to be worshiping the Lord. Oh, this was facing the wrong way. I'll say, you know, I, I want you to be, uh, you know, worshiping the Lord, but worshiping the Lord uh, from the heart. And, uh, and, and so if you can do that uh, remotely, well, you know, that's better than not doing it at all. So I just want to be clear on that. It's just as for me, I, I, will, I will be here as long as, you know, the Lord allows me to be here. And uh, it's just my conviction that if I'm going to go down, I want to go down with the church. You know, I want to go down having served with the church and, and equipping with the church, serving the, the saints and, and being served by the saints. And, and I, I just don't think there's a better place on earth to be than, than with the body of Christ. Right. So that's, uh, that, that's my, my conviction for you. Um, now, last time we uh, met to talk about biblical counseling, I know last week um, Brett showed a couple of videos uh, from Paul Tripp, which um, were great videos. I heard that they were, they were well-received, and we, um, as we have time, we'll watch, uh, watch one tonight as well, just to, just to see the continuation of that. Uh, but I do want to continue on in our lesson plan, and I don't have um, slides uh, for, for this next section. We'll have to just go through from the pamphlet that you guys have. Um, I think the last section that we had covered was eschatology. We had talked about systematic theology and, and why that matters. And in essence, uh, as a reminder, there was that pyramid that we had talked about where the foundational level of the pyramid in terms of how we practice our theology was, was the scriptures itself. And then it was the biblical principles of um, interpretation, which we call hermeneutics or exegesis. Um, and then above that was biblical theology, then systematic theology, and then practical theology. And biblical counseling is at that top of the pyramid where we call it uh, practical theology. And the idea is that practical theology is, um, is derived from a true understanding of what the Word teaches. I mean, that's basically what the pyramid is communicating, that we, we derive our principles in terms of applying the Bible to our lives based on a true understanding of what the Word of God really says. Um, we don't just, just pick and choose uh, what verses uh, we want and take them out of context and, and then apply them to our lives when, when they don't apply to us, uh, but rather we, we take those verses, we understand them in context, and we apply them correctly. Um, and, and just um, before we continue on, let me give you an example of this, because I know um, I, I think it was um, a couple of Wednesdays ago when I was sitting in on the hermeneutics class with uh, Terry Norris, we talked about Jeremiah 29. Let me, um, let me take you real quick to Jeremiah 29. It's worth addressing this at least once in, in this uh, larger crowd because 
This is one of the most popular memory verses that I see for Christians and believers. Is uh, from Jeremiah uh, 29. Um, that's obviously in the Old Testament. So if you find your way to Jeremiah um, 29, Jeremiah 29, and look at verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Are we all there? Okay, Jeremiah 29, verse 11 reads this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Um, that is a very, very popular memory verse amongst Christians. And, and I understand why. It's a beautiful verse. Um, you know, we, we see God's character in this. You know, we see his faithfulness. We see his kindness. We see his uh, grace um, upon his people. Um, there's a problem with using this as a memory verse for us today. Um, it's not addressed to us. And, um, and just to give you... Uh, you know, to, to kind of broaden your vision of this a little bit, um, if we stop and think about who Jeremiah is, Jeremiah obviously is one of the prophets. But he wasn't just any prophet, okay? He, he was the last prophet in Judah before um, Israel was completely exiled from the Promised Land. And that is very significant. What I just said right there is hugely significant because when you think about the Abrahamic promise, going all the way back to Genesis 12 when God started the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, um, what he promised Abraham is that you would be a great nation, Right? But he also promised them land. Um, he, he, he would promise that they're going to they're receive land, they're, they're, and they're going to dwell there forever. Um, so land was a very central part of the Abrahamic covenant for the, nation, for the nation of Israel. Now, there was also a part of that Abrahamic covenant in which they would be a blessing to the rest of the nations of the earth. That's where us as Gentiles received those blessings. And that would ultimately be realized with Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the, the, you know, the declaration of the Great Commission, the commandment that he gave to his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations. Um, so we see those promises in the Abrahamic covenant. But land, from, from really the very beginning, all throughout Genesis, you'll see it repeated over and over again, that this was a central part of that promise to Israel. So the fact that they would end up getting kicked out of the land is hugely significant because this was land that had been promised to them by the covenant given to Abraham. And now they're being kicked out. Now, why are they being kicked out? That's where the Mosaic Covenant comes in. Because when the Law of Moses, um, we think of it as the Ten Commandments, but it's a lot more than the Ten Commandments. It's really all the, the law that was given to Moses by God uh, for the nation of Israel. But part of those Ten Commandments, and you can just write this down, Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 provide what are the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. The blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And when you look at, for instance, um, and I won't go there, but if you were to look at the opening part of that, it, it says that the blessings, part of those blessings is that you will dwell peacefully within the land. Um, your, your harvest will be fruitful. You know, your, the womb will be fruitful. You know, you, you will have protection against your enemies. They, they, will, they will end up serving you. And even if they outnumber you, you're going to be able to defeat them. So there was all kinds of blessings and promises that came by, by obeying the, the law of Moses, the, the Mosaic Covenant. The curses were the opposite, that you won't have the blessings of the womb. You won't have the blessings of the harvest. You won't have peace. In fact, there's going to be pestilence. There's going to be disease. There's going to be war and famine and all those kinds of things. And when you go through, especially in Leviticus 26, when you trace the progress, you see that eventually what God says is that if you just continue to disobey, if you, if you continue to refuse to repent, I'm going to scatter you from the promised land. Okay, so this great promise, this great promise that I've been given to, giving to your forefathers, to you, that, that you would dwell in your land forever, you're going to be kicked out of it if you just keep disobeying. 
And so what we see with the prophet Jeremiah is that realization that they have continued to disobey. And in fact, Jeremiah wasn't even the start of the exile. The start of the exile happened earlier um, because Israel ended up getting split into two nations. Um, one in the north was Israel and the one in the south was Judah. And the reason it was split was because of the sins of Solomon. Right, Solomon, um, he, he married um, hundreds and hundreds of wives. He had many concubines, you know, and really the effect is that they brought idolatry into the land. And because of the idolatry, that's when the judgment came down upon Solomon, who represented the house of David, saying, okay, because of my promise to your father, you're going to, you and your line will remain king. But you're only going to be kings of the region of Judea, um, Judea of Judah. And the rest of the um, nation is going to be split off to a separate nation. So the, um, the, the northern kingdom of Israel ended up getting exiled, um, I want to say, 722 B.C. Um, and then from there, there was multiple phases of exile that happened for Judah. But, you know, when the northern kingdom was exiled first, God gave Judah many chances. He said, look, look at what's happening to the northern kingdom. The same thing that happened in the northern kingdom is the same thing that happens to you if you don't, if you don't repent. You know, if you'll, you don't turn from your sins. And, and so what we see when you read through the book of Jeremiah, it is a painful book to read. It's, easy, it's not hard to understand. It's just painful because Jeremiah is constantly calling them to repentance. He's constantly crying out to them for their sins. In fact, Jeremiah is in so much pain, he doesn't even want to do it anymore. He's like, I don't want to, I don't want to say these things anymore. He, he tries to keep his mouth shut, and that's when it's like fire in his bones, and he can't, he can't help but to say it. You know, so even against his own will, he has to, he has to share these, these prophecies of judgment and these calls to repentance to Israel. And not only that, but they, you know, they not only didn't listen to him, but they punished him. You know, they persecuted him. And so Jeremiah is a painful book exactly because at the tail end of their time in the promised land before the exile, they've been given multiple chances to repent and they continue to refuse to repent. And so Jeremiah is the one that witnesses all that. Um, several decades of ministry and he didn't see one single person turn, right? Um, so Jeremiah is a painful letter for that reason. When you get to Jeremiah chapter 29, the exile has already happened. And in chapter 29, he's actually addressing the exiles who are in Babylon. And he's addressing them, saying that, look, there's going to be a period of 70 years, all right? But, but for 70 years, um, do what is right in that land. Do what is right in Babylon, and I'm going to bring you back. So we'll, we'll just read through this, and you'll see this. And um, look at uh, chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, prophets, people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And uh, we'll go down to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. Um, for, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And so what the Lord here is saying is that as you are in the land of Babylon, do what is good for that nation. You know, obey them, you know, get married, continue to multiply, have, make, make a living, have a life. All right. Don't don't just go into, uh, you know, don't don't go into this isolation mode um, and, and pray for their welfare. 
You know, though they're not a nation of God, pray for their welfare anyway, because as long for in their welfare, you're going to have your welfare. Right? So he's basically saying, go, make a living, do what is right, do what is good. And then verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So he's basically saying, literally, after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. After 70 years um, in Babylon, I'm going to bring you back to to your, your homeland, to, to, your, to the promised land. So basically the, the punishment in the exile is going to last 70 years. Um, and then he goes on, verse 11, and here's the, that verse that many, many people made their own life verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, historically, looking back at this, we know that that happened. They ended up coming back. It wasn't even all of Israel, though. It was a small subset of Israel that ended up coming back. So what we're looking at in this verse, it was a verse in a specific period of history to a specific group of people, and it wasn't even to all the exiles, but to a subset of exiles who ended up coming back um, to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. Um, so as we look at this verse, I mean, I would even argue that the Israelites today can't even claim this verse because it was for a specific people in a specific period. Um, so there's a problem with making this memory verse is that when you look at it in context, it was very specific in its application. And it would be um, the comparison I would make is if, uh, you know, if you had dug up some old letters from your grandparents and you found a love letter that your grandfather had written to your grandmother. And, uh, and then you decide to spiritualize and say that love letter was for me. Well, OK, well, I mean, your grandparents certainly loved you. That's true. But that letter was written to. His wife, right? The grandfather's writing to your grandmother, who is the wife. So while you can say that your grandfather loves you, you can't use that letter to say, yeah, yeah, this, this is what he wrote for me, right? You wouldn't do that. You know, so that's, that's really the equivalent of, of what's going on here. My point is this, is that as we seek to apply the Bible to our lives, um, the, the whole purpose of, of understanding, you know, proper you know, methods of interpretation, understanding systematic theology and those kinds of things, is that we just want to be able to take verses in context. And when we understand them in context, they become much, much more powerful. And let me give you um, another example. Go to, yep, yeah. Oh, yeah, so, so this passage, okay, as we look at this passage, um, we see God's goodness here, don't we? We see God's grace. We, we see God's faithfulness to his promises, don't we? Those are principles that we can pull out of that. We can look at that and say, you know what? What we see here is God is faithful to his promises. And he, as he was faithful to his promises to the, these group of Israelites, he is faithful to us for those who have put their faith into Jesus Christ. Right? He, he is faithful to his promise to bring us, to bring us with him to, to heaven. You know, when Jesus Christ in John 14 says, I go away to prepare a place for you. And if he goes away, what does that mean? It means he's going to come back and bring you there. We can trust him on that. You know, and I heard um, the adult Bible study was going through um, Romans 9 this morning. And just the prior chapter in Romans 8, you know, Paul ends Romans 8 with this crescendo of, of look, if Jesus Christ died for you, who could possibly ever take away your salvation? If God the Father was willing to sacrifice his own son, you know, no one can, can bring in a, a, an accusation against you. There, there's no one that can stand against you. 
you know, this, this promise, you know, when you have the Holy Spirit, when you have put your faith into Jesus Christ, no one can take that promise of salvation away from you. No trial in this life can ruin what's coming up in the future. You know, in fact, um, Paul would, would say that, um, you know, the, the persecutions that he faces in this life are nothing more than a light minor affliction. And that light minor affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory, right? And, and that's a promise, you know, that, that's a guarantee that we have. So we can look at that and say God is faithful, and this is an example of God's faithfulness. Now, if you want to use a verse that, um, take a memory verse that speaks of God's faithfulness, go to Romans 8.28. You know, he causes all things to come together for good for those who love God, for those who call, are called according to his purpose. You know, remember John 14, that, that Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, it means I'm coming back, right? Mm -hmm. Or even the end of the Great Commission was Jesus Christ say, I'm with you to the end of the age. You know, Jesus is going to be with us forever, not only here, but also into the future when, when the next life begins. Um, so there, there's a lot of memory verses that you can make really as your true life verse. But, you know, you want to be careful about taking something out of the Old Testament. And this, by the way, when I talked about the blessings of obedience and the curses for disobedience, um, this is why prosperity pastors love to take verses out of the Old Testament. They love to take verses out of the Old Testament. Um, so if you hear someone that's preaching prosperity, that God wants you to be prosperous and rich, they have a wealth of verses to take out of the Old Testament because there was a real promise from God to his nation that if you obey this law, you will be blessed. But what did we learn about that law? No one can obey it. No one can keep it. That was the whole point of the, New, of the Old Testament to show us that nobody could keep this law in its totality. But yet the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic promise that that, that God would bless Israel and then also bless all the families of, of the earth, all the nations of the earth, um, that ended up being made possible by um, the new covenant, by Jesus Christ, who was the only one who could fulfill the old covenant. And by fulfilling the old covenant, he's the one that brings the new covenant, which, by the way, we're in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 31 is when he brings the promise of the new covenant. And uh, if you read through Jeremiah 31, we won't read through it here, but Jeremiah 31 is basically, look, this new covenant is not like the old covenant. The old covenant you guys broke. The idea is that this new covenant cannot be broken. And, and how? Why? Well, it's because this new covenant, the law of God, is going to be written to your heart. It's going to be written to your heart. The idea that your heart's going to be circumcised, you're going to receive a new heart. Um, so these, these things are made sure by that, uh, by that new covenant. And um, just... Um, just this past week, um, I don't know if you guys uh, know about a guy named Stephen Furtick. Okay, Stephen Furtick is a, he's, he's a very well-known preacher, um, Elevation Church, um, fast-growing church, very, very popular. And, and, and the guy's a dynamic speaker. I mean, he's, he's a far more passionate, more dynamic speaker than I could ever be. All right, but as he was going through Acts chapter 10, and uh, Acts chapter 10, we won't look at it, but if you remember in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10 is when Peter receives that vision from heaven. You know, the, there's a sheet coming down, and, and basically God gives him this message that there's no unclean foods, right? And then the Holy Spirit leads Peter to Cornelius to bring him the gospel, right? And, and when you think about historically that, that chapter, that is a very, very significant chapter in God's plan of redemption. Because up until chapter 10, when you look at the first nine chapters of Acts, the focus of the gospel has been almost completely and primarily upon Jews. You know, evangelizing fellow Jews, evangelizing fellow Jews. And then finally, Peter here receives a vision. Go to Cornelius. And so this is, this is the first time that, that we see um, them being commanded to bring the gospel to someone who is a Gentile. 
Um, and so that is start, the start of the turn. But it's, it's not even, though Peter was the one that was called to do that, Peter wasn't even the apostle to the Gentiles. Who was the apostle to the Gentiles? It was Paul. And so Paul, in Acts chapter 9, the previous chapter, he's, he actually got saved, right? He, the road to Damascus and that blinding light from heaven, right? And then Paul ends up getting sent out on a missionary journey. And on his first missionary journey, what happens? A whole bunch of Gentiles get saved. He's wandering into Gentile territory, and they're getting saved just by faith, just by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. He comes back after his first missionary journey to ascending church, Antioch. And now he's, then he's got some Judaizers coming down from Jerusalem saying, well, those Gentiles need to obey the law. They need to be circumcised. They need this. They need that. You know, so they're adding all kinds of requirements. And um, Paul is so frustrated, they, they all end up going back together to Jerusalem. And Paul stands before the elders in Jerusalem to present all that has happened in the first missionary journey of uh, the salvation of the Gentiles and how they've been responding by faith. And guess which one of those, those disciples, which one of those apostles in Jerusalem was the first to come to Paul's defense? It was Peter. It was Peter, actually. And, and what, what I'm trying to say is that Peter, and you know how Peter comes to his defense? Peter is able to say, I had a vision from heaven that told me to go and bring the gospel to the house of Cornelius. So not only was that chapter significant in that he had uh, been commanded, Peter being commanded to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, but also he would also be, by the sovereignty of God, he, he's the preeminent of all the disciples, and he's the one that ends up standing in defense of Paul, saying what Paul is saying I can affirm is true, just from, just from God, God's word to me as well. And so it, it's, it's a beautiful way that God in his sovereignty works all these circumstances together. Well, I bring up Stephen Furtick. He was reading through that passage in Acts chapter 10, and he was describing this vision from heaven. And, um, and I don't know what translation he was reading out of, but, but he, he was talking about how Peter was in Joppa. And he said, and I was in Joppa, um, and, um, and the Lord descended, and it came to where, and, and some, some sort of vision came to where I was. And then he repeated that sentence, it came to where I was. It came to where he repeated it several times, and then finally he stopped and said, God wants to bring it to you. Are you ready to receive it? And so it's basically this prosperity message. You know, so he's saying, saying it came to where I was simply by praying. I, I was praying in Joppa, and it came to where I was. The blessings of God came to where I was. The things I wanted in my life came to where I was. Um, and and as, he's, as, as he's escalating in, in his, his volume and his emphasis upon this, the, the entire church is standing up and applauding, and, and they're, they're loving what he's saying, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're excited, they're motivated, they're encouraged, right? Um, the problem is, you look at this, and it's like, he totally butchered that passage. He completely butchered that passage. I mean, and he completely ignored the context. And not only that, but that little video clip, he posted that himself on social media with the heading and it came to where I was thinking that he wanted to post it to show this as an encouragement to all Christians. Well, that's not an encouragement to me because you just basically took it out of context. But this is an example where when if you really understood the context, to me, that passage in its context is far more powerful than what Stephen Furtick ended up turning it into being. Stephen turned it into being a theology of self, right? That God wants to bless you and wants to bring this to you and all you need to do is pray and God's going to bring it to you. You know, God's going to meet you where you're at and give you what it is that, that you need. Uh, but in context, this is God's faithfulness to his promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. This is his faithfulness to his plan of redemption that goes back to the beginning of the Bible. That his plan can never be broken. 
You know, when we read in Isaiah 46 that God knows the end from the beginning, right? And, and he's going to bring all things to, to, to pass. That's the implication of that. You know, it's powerful to, to think, uh, to, to see how God unfolded his plan and how he used people like Peter and Paul and, and just sovereignly, you know, weave their, their lives together at key moments um, to be able to bear witness to that. Um, so it, it is powerful, but it's powerful in how it testifies about God and not about us. Because in context, Peter wasn't even the one getting blessed by that, by, by that vision. Peter was just being used as an instrument to bring the gospel to someone else. You know, and so we, we want to, all that to say this, that, um, you know, these examples from Jeremiah 29 and Acts 10, we want to be able to take these biblical passages in context. And when you take them in context, they will have real power to you. Um, and the real power we know comes from the Holy Spirit, right, who illumines the truth of those texts to our hearts and minds, um, but also the Holy Spirit in, in, you know, Holy Spirit provided us with his word. He, he is residing within us. And as we obey the word of God, as we properly apply these things to our life, we can see real heart change in our lives and the lives of other believers. You know, and that's what we're really after when it comes to biblical counseling. So that was a long introduction. <clears throat> our hour is almost over. Everyone's looking at their clock. Yeah, it's just, hey, it's almost dinner time. <laughs> But I, I think that was important. I, I think that's an important example. And, and just two real world. Um, hey, you know, we can be here all day. I, <laughs> um, yeah, but, but this, is, this is why um, it's so important to understand the scriptures, understand it in context and apply it in context. Now, this morning I preached from Psalm 23. Someone can say, well, that was also in the Old Testament. Are you saying that doesn't apply to us? Well, no, because there is nothing in that psalm that limits it to David or to Israel. Um, you can apply that to everyone who puts their faith into God, and especially everyone who puts their faith into Christ, especially when you remember that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. When he said, I am the good shepherd, he's, he's pointing back to the Old Testament saying, I am the one that's going to do what your shepherds previously have failed to do. I am the one that they're going to follow. I'm the one that's going to protect them. In fact, I'm going to protect them to the point that I'm going to die for them. And that's us. He, he died for us. He died for us, and, and he gave us life. And so when we look at, um, at that psalm, no, that, that psalm applies just as much to us as it did to David back then. But I think it was significant that it was David that wrote that when you consider his life and all that he went through. You know, his, his experience as a shepherd, you know, all the highs and lows that he went through as a king, and then for him to write that and say that, you know what, at the end of the day, you know, after all the um, power that he had and, and uh, the prosperity that he had and the difficulties he went through, at the end of the day, what he recognized was that the Lord is his shepherd and he has no want. He has nothing that he lacks. And, and that's why that, that psalm is so, so powerful, so, so beautiful. But let us um, go back to um, the lesson here. And we had gotten through the systematic theology section. And um, I believe the next section after that is, um, let's see, the theological problems with some Christian counseling books. Is that correct? Yes. Theological problems with some Christian counseling books. And that would be, let me flip to the page here. Yeah, section E, that's at the top of page 8, right? Page 8, um, section E, section E. And so let me just um, say this. There are a lot of books out there um, that talk about Christian counseling. 
Okay, there are, there are a lot of Christian counselors all out there, but not all Christian counselors um, rely equally on the scriptures. Uh, and it's like a spectrum. There are some Christian counselors that totally believe in the scriptures, and there are some Christian counselors that believe in psychology and some of the modern methods of thinking, and they'll sprinkle some verses on top of that. You know, you, you have to discern when, when, you're, listening, when you're listening to them. And um, I'm going to say a name, and this might, uh, this might trigger some of you, um, but, um, because I, I think he's, he's a good and godly man, but, but I think he, but he does. I don't just think. I know he does. He, he does mix in a lot of psychology with what he believes, and that's uh, Dr. James Dobson. Yeah. He, he's, he's a good man. I mean, I, I, you know, I, 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 think he's, um, I think he's solid, um, but a lot of his counseling does mix in um, psychology if you pay attention to it. You know, so when you're reading counseling books, when you're listening to counsel from, um, you know, men of God, you want to ask yourself, okay, where is this coming from? How, how is this supported in, in Scripture? Um, so as we think about the theological problems of some counseling books, um, these are seven points here that talk about some of these problems. And uh, one, uh, and this is probably the most important, is the absence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the absence of the Holy Spirit. And, and this can go in a number of different ways. The absence of the Holy Spirit could speak to the fact that the person giving the counsel is not even saved, right? That the counselor is only claiming to be a Christian. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, Oprah Winfrey will tell you that she's a Christian. You know, but she's got these kind of worldly advisors, spiritual advisors, Eckhart Tolle and people like that who don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Oprah doesn't even believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. You know, but she'll say she's a Christian and she'll give you counsel. Um, well, it's highly doubtful as we look at her that she even has the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say that she can't be saved. I hope she, I, I hope she learns the truth. I hope she repents. You know, so I, I don't mean to, you know, cast a judgment upon her, but based upon what we've seen, I, I don't believe she really has the Holy Spirit, right? And, um, you know, when, uh, when Joel Osteen's on the Larry King show and he's asked point blank, is Jesus Christ the only way to heaven? And his response is, I don't know. Um, I, I don't. I don't think he has the Holy Spirit. I'll just be honest with you. Um, that that was Joel Osteen. I mean, I mean, put it this way. Look, as a Christian, if you know nothing else, if you're a brand new baby Christian, if you know nothing else, you know this: that Jesus Christ saves, and Jesus Christ alone. All right. You you can't think that Jesus Christ is just one of many ways, and I've just simply chosen one way to go there. No, Jesus Christ says, "I am the way and the truth and the life." Right? That's John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? Yeah. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12. You know, Peter says, There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. All right, so what we know as a brand new baby Christian, if you know nothing else, is that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone saves. All right? Even the most baby of Christians should know that. So when the pastor of the largest church in America is online with Larry King and says, I don't know, to the question of whether Jesus Christ is the only way. And then he further explains that by saying that he grew up in India, his father was a missionary there, and he saw a lot of people that didn't know Jesus, but they loved God. Well, no, they didn't love God. None of us love God until we come to faith in Jesus Christ, right? I mean, what, is, what does Romans 3 tell us is that no one seeks after God, right? No one, no one does good, not even one. You know, so right there, you, you see a lot of wrong theology coming out of him. So there's an absence of the Holy Spirit that can come from so-called Christian counselors. 
And even in that passage that we read from Jeremiah, we, we saw that warning from God to the Israelites saying, do not listen to your prophets because I did not speak to them. I did not send them. You know, and the prophets were, were powered by the Holy Spirit of God. But obviously the ones who are false were not. So the absence of the Holy Spirit might be an absence on the side of the counselor. Um, but it could also be um, an, an absence in terms of relying upon the Holy Spirit in prayer. Okay, when you're giving counsel to people, when you're trying to bring truth that's going to transform people's lives, you got to remember that all you can do is bring the truth from your mouth to their ears. You can't bring it from their ears to their heart. You can only bring truth from your mouth to their ears. You can't bring it from their ears to their heart. That has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, and so as, as we work with people, you're going to share truth with people and you're going to see people not respond to it. Um, it doesn't mean that the truth is any less true. It, it just means that the Holy Spirit has not done its work. And it may be that that uh, person you're speaking to doesn't really believe that truth. That person may not have the Holy Spirit. You know, or that person is, is simply being disobedient, you know, to, to what, the, the, what the Word of God says. Still getting lost uh, in his or her ways and still chasing after the ways of the world. So we rely upon the Holy Spirit in the counselor, in the counselee, and in the process of transformation. You know, as, as we pray, what we pray for, that the work of transformation that happens with us and with anyone who grows is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so the Holy Spirit is crucial in this process of counseling. Um, sub point number two is neglect of the church. Um, neglect of the church. And, and this is the problem with making counseling into just a clinical service. You know, almost like you're, you're going to uh, go see the doctor. You're going to go visit him in his office, and after that you're going to come back home. You know, if, we're, if we become counselors that simply have an office that people come and visit and we give no regards to the church, you're going to rob that person of all the power of change and transformation in that person's life. Because as you know, as we have been going through the book of Ephesians, Ephesians is written to the church, right? It assumes that you're in the church. And if, if for example, you know, you get a Christian who is not a part of the church, not participating in the church, not attending a church, you know, the question that I can ask them is you open up the New Testament and say, okay, which one of these letters um, actually applies to you? Well, that's a trick question. None of them do, do because it assumes that you're in the church. All these letters assume that you're a part of a church. Even when you follow through the life of Jesus Christ and, and read some of his words, like when he tells Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. You know, his, his the assumption all along is that his people would gather together. And so we don't want to neglect the church as we counsel people. We want to make sure that they are um, making themselves a part of the church, that they're attending service, they're getting to know people, um, they're attending fellowship or Bible studies when they can, um, that, that through the week that they're, they're reading things that um, are going to edify them and not, not break their minds apart. You, you know, one of you I was just talking to recently how, how your, your, your son is, um, is reading a lot of philosophy and a lot of other um, ideas rather than Christian books. And, you know, when you read philosophy from people who don't believe in God, you know, for instance, the, um, the father of psychology, um, one of the, at least one of the fathers of psychology, Sigmund Freud, right? And then when you think about another man like um, Charles Darwin, right? He, he's the, he's the uh, father of the theory of evolution, right? You know, both of those two men hated God. They, they absolutely denied the existence of God. And they came up with their worldviews as an alternative explanation to try to explain a life and a world without God. 
You know, and so when when you're trying to grow according to the knowledge of God, and then you think that there's some value to be gained by reading Darwin and reading Freud or reading any number of people who are influenced by them, you're not you're not helping yourself, right? It, it's it's gonna it's gonna hurt you. Um, so you want them reading good materials. You want them in the church. You want them, and and not just in the church, but in a good church, in a Bible teaching church. You know, this is um, this came up, I think, last time when we talked about the importance of, of the church and why biblical counseling should be connected to a church um, is because if, if I were to just come here, let's say I came to Imperial Valley and I said, OK, I'm not interested in pastoring a church. I just want to start a biblical counseling ministry. Well, great. I'll counsel some people. And then some of you people are going off to churches who teach some of the same false doctrine and theology of some of the people that we see out in the world. What good is that going to do you? You're hearing truth from me, and then you're hearing something else from your own pastor, right? Um, so what you want is you want them to be a part of a, a, a biblical church. Um, at the pastor's conference, I got to um, catch up with a lot of um, people from my past, and there was uh, one gentleman by the name of uh, Jonathan Dale. Jonathan Dale is a fellow seminarian. He's a pastor now out in Kansas, and um, he actually grew up in Imperial. He grew up in Imperial. He knew about the opening here at Western Avenue's Western, Western Avenue Baptist Church and, and his wife Nora Dale wanted so badly for them to kind of pursue this but um, he was worried about having too much familiarity you know because he's a young guy and you know and, uh, and, and maybe he wouldn't be able to have the impact that, uh, that he wanted to have great guy though I, I talked to him very um, sharp guy very godly man um, doing very well um, in, uh, in Kansas but um, he went to a church in Imperial his family's going to a church in Imperial and you know and he told me that when he comes to visit he wants to come here you know, he wants to come and visit with us on, on Sunday with, with the hope that his family would come as well. You know, so you want, you, you know, you want people going to a church where you trust the word of God is being proclaimed, where you trust the word of God is being preached, where you trust that the preacher and the teachers there believe in the power and, and the sufficiency and the authority and the inerrancy of the word of God. So that, that's very important. Do not neglect the church. Number three, a lack of emphasis um, upon prayer. I talked a little bit about this with the Holy Spirit, but uh, the emphasis on prayer is huge. Um, you know, there's a quote, and I can't remember who said it, uh, but someone said that uh, you, you find out a lot about someone's faith by just how much they pray. Um, and, and even as I say that, that, that's a very convicting statement, right? Um, because I don't know anyone that says, oh, yeah, I, I pray I, I pray enough. I, I, I do exactly the amount of prayer that I should be doing. Well, I mean, I would say that for my life and even people that um, I have followed and been discipled by, you know, this is often something that we don't do enough of. You know, so a lack of emphasis upon prayer when it comes to transformation. You know, prayer helps us to connect our hearts in communion with our God. You know, and prayer is not simply just interceding for the saints. I mean, we often think about that. And we've got a prayer list that goes around. Um, Wednesday nights, we pray for our fellow saints. Friday morning, we come together and pray for our saints. But it can't just be about interceding for the saints. You know, it's got to be also just spending personal time with God, communicating with God, reflecting on his glorious attributes, reflecting on all the reasons um, that he's worthy of praise, all the thanksgiving that you can lift up to him. And there's there's a lot. I, I know if I sat down with each and every one of you and talked about um, your lives and how God has sustained you, you can come up with quite a long list of things that you can be thankful to God about. You know, and as um, you know, I'm looking at Julie. Julie was, you know, in the hospital for what seemed like forever with Steve Reeves, right? And and now Steve is back, and what what a wonderful sight to see him playing the drums and and uh, slowly getting back uh, to to normal. Um, 
But praise God for how, you know, God brought him through that, right? You know, we, we see that as a miracle. And, and when we think about the Old Testament, you know, there's a reason why God would often tell the Israelites to build an altar or to, to, to grab Ebenezer stones, you know, these stones of remembrance or to, or to have these kind of these festivals and, and feasts of remembrance. You know, like, for instance, the Passover. What was the Passover for? The Passover was to remind them of God's deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt, Right. Um, so, in other words, you know, and, and each altar almost, you know, you can find several altars that the Lord would tell them to go ahead and build up. And it was because of something great that God did in that place for the people of Israel. It was meant to remind them of the great works of God. And so for us as Christians, you know, as you go through your life, start to recount all the wondrous things that God has done in your life in your past. You know, that's, that's a simple an effective way to counsel yourself is to remember the, the great things that God has done. And when you go to him in prayer, you know, when you're feeling discouraged, you can just start reflecting back on all the ways that God has, has been there for you, has delivered you, has blessed you. Because we, we can be notoriously short-sighted. We, we, we can have a very short memory. It's just like the Israelites. You know, they, they, saw, the ten, you know, they saw the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt, right? They saw the parting of the Red Sea, and the moment they run out of food, Oh, Moses, did we just come out here to die? You know, I mean, and, you know, and if you're doing that five-day Bible reading plan, you're going through the Pentateuch, it's not just one time they do that. They do that over and over, and every single time the Lord provides, and then they do it again and again and again. And, and then finally Moses gets so fed up, and, and then he dishonors God in striking the, the rock at the, you know, the, what's called the waters of Meribah. Um, but, um, but when we look at those Israelites, you know, are we really all that different from them? I mean, we, we can be notoriously short-sighted with short memories of all the ways that God has delivered us from the past. But the next trial that comes up, we think that God can't deliver us. You know, we think that we need something else. You know, so we, we go to God in prayer for, uh, exactly for these moments. You know, Philippians uh, 4, that's a great counseling um, verse. And you've heard this many times. You can turn there with me. Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verses um, 6 and 7. It's a great memory verse. Philippians uh, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. You know, in our lives, you know, we, we can be gripped by anxiety. We can, we can be gripped by fear. We can be um, paralyzed by the unknown. And, you know, and I know a lot of you, you, you have um, almost like a control complex where if you don't feel like you're in control, you're almost paralyzed. It's, it's hard to operate without, without knowing that you have some sort of control. Of course, you, don't, you never have control of your environment. You know, God's the only one that has control. But Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 is a great memory verse to counsel our own hearts during those times of uncertainty. You know, not only can we remember all the great things that God has done for us before, but as we go to him in prayer, remember this, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And you know what we have a, this, you know what this is? This is a supernatural promise. You know, I don't like to get overly mystical, but I'll get mystical when the Bible gets mystical. And this is a supernatural mystical promise because he says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. What's that going to do? It's going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus just by lifting up your anxieties onto the Lord. I mean, how good is that promise? 
You know, and that, that fits right in with Psalm 23, what we read this morning. This is one of the ways that the, that the Lord shepherds us, that the Lord cares for us. And um, on that note, uh, go to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, further over to the right, closer to the end, before Revelation and Jude and the three Johns. 1 Peter 5. <clears throat> it's the last chapter of 1 Peter, before 2 Peter. You get to 1 Peter 5 and look at verse 6. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 you know, talking about being in trials, because, you know, this letter is all about sustaining through trials. You know, they're worried about the persecution from Nero coming out to, to them. You know, Christians were, were being executed in Rome for a fire that they did not start. Peter's writing this letter in order to encourage them, to instruct them on how to conduct themselves. And uh, towards the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. You know what's interesting? I mean, the persecution that they were seeing was coming from unbelievers, right? It was coming from a, a Gentile government that was looking to pin the blame for a fire that they did not commit upon Christians. But ultimately, Peter understands that every trial that we go through is not outside the sovereign control of God. God is in control of all things. And so that's why he says here, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God for this reason, so at the proper time he may exalt you. At the proper time. That's not a time that we decide. That's a time that he decides. And then verse 7, similar to what we just read in Philippians, casting all your anxieties on him. And this, uh, th this word, um, casting, this is... Um, you know, this, this idea of casting is, is, is like casting out demons. It's like throwing something really hard. You know, it's, it's this idea that you're throwing all of your anxieties upon God. And you're doing it for this reason, because he cares for you. He cares for you. Is that not a wonderful promise? Is that not a wonderful statement? You know, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And he goes on in verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This, um, this statement about Satan is not disconnected from, you know, Peter saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and cast your anxieties upon God. Because if you end up getting gripped and controlled by your anxieties and your fears, you make yourself open to being devoured by Satan. And I don't, I don't mean that he's going to steal your salvation, but, but that, he, you know, he's going to make you useless for the spiritual battle. He's going to make you useless for the spiritual war. I mean, that's Ephesians 6, when we get there, that's put on the full armor of God, you know, so that you can stand in, in that day when, when Satan is coming at you with his flaming arrows. Um, so these are wonderful truths we can go to God in, in prayer for. Um, we're not going to have time for the video, by the way. I don't know if you figured that out. We'll do that another time. All right. All right, so, um, wow, just, I just covered three points. Okay, so that was the lack of emphasis <laughs> upon prayer. <laughs> and number four, here's number four. And this is, uh, this is where we get to, um, you know, some people that rely upon man-made ideas and wisdom. Number four, no commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture. 
Um, you know, when we counsel people and we're not going to the Word of God, when we counsel people and we're just trying to share our own experiences with our family members or our friends, oh, have you tried this, have you tried that, and, and we're not going to Scripture, um, it's making a statement, even without us explicitly making the statement, that the, the, the Scriptures are not sufficient, that, that you need my experiences, right? You, you need these ideas that I've got. But even worse than that is when people go to psychology and, and other ideas that are really against the Bible, to say, well, well, well th- use this. You know, it's like when I just mentioned um, Oprah Winfrey and her spiritual advisors. You know, you start reading these books by Eckhart Tolle and people like that, you're going to get a lot of things that are just unbiblical, right? And, and so, you know, our commitment to the sufficiency of, su- sufficiency of Scripture means that for me to counsel you, I can show you from Scripture um, what it is that we're to do, what it is that God expects of us, all right? And then uh, point number five, the renaming of sin and the omitting of sorrow and repentance. Okay, the renaming of sin. And uh, you, you'll see this if you pay close enough attention to it. Um, we have in our society a lot of disorders. Got a lot of disorders. He's got a drinking disorder. You know, he's got a behavior disorder. He, he's got this disorder. He's got that disorder. Um, we're not calling it what it really is. It's sin. It's sin. Pure and simple. It's sin. And, and what, what has happened in our world, and, and this is part of the, and this is connected to point seven when we get there, this psychologized terminology. Um, we start to use terminology and concepts from psychology that are rooted in an unbiblical worldview. And, and really the goal of psychology, because psychology, remember that at, at its core, when you look at the teachings of Sigmund Freud and other, other secular psychologists, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the depravity of man. They don't believe that we as men are born as sinners, and that is our greatest problem in our earthly existence, that we are sinners. We are sinners standing before a holy God. We are sinners that deserve judgment from God. That is our biggest problem. That is our biggest issue. And, and so when we start to give into psychologized terminology where we start to call this a disorder, what you're doing in essence is you're saying that this is not really your fault this is something that was brought onto you by external circumstances. This is brought onto you by external circumstances. Something outside of you has caused this. Maybe it's your upbringing. Maybe it's how your parents were. Maybe it was some traumatic experience that you went through as, as a child. Uh, something of that nature. And so we start to call it something other than what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, for children, and uh, this really kind of started happening a, a lot as I was um, growing up, especially th- during the high school and, and college years, um, when children that were diagnosed with um, um, ADD were, were given Ritalin, right? They're given Ritalin. And, and that, was, um, that was a double-edged sword. Um, because by, you know, by giving them Ritalin, you're not really addressing the real source of the issue. And by giving them Ritalin, you're, you're also just, um, you're also telling them that what they're going through, the, the, the difficulties they have, is not a problem in their heart, but it's something that requires medication. You know, and it can create that kind of uh, dependence upon medication going forward. Um, and so there, there's, this, um, there, there's this lack of accountability that is bred by, by these kinds of, um, you know, these kinds of um, that terminology that, that's being used. You know, this uh, renaming of sin and calling it something other than sin. And, uh, and so you, you get people to thinking that it's not really my fault, it's, it's, uh, it's really the environment, it's my upbringing, it's, uh, it's my circumstances. And, and really, you know what that creates is um, a victim mentality. I'm a victim of the circumstances I've grown up in. 
You know, now, let me say this. Not all of us are created the same way, right? Yeah. You know, we, we all have unique personalities. We all have unique struggles. And, and, you know, the struggles I have is not necessarily the struggles that you have. And the struggles you have is not necessarily the struggles that you're going to have, right? Everyone has different struggles. Some people have issues with anger, right? So, some people have issues with, with dependence, you know, and, and it's still sin. At the end of the day, it's still sin, you know, and we are called to conquer that, that sin. And the only way to truly conquer that sin is through our um, trust in God and our devotion to his word and the constant application of his word into our life. But it's not easy. No one ever said battling sin is easy. No, this is, this is a lifelong battle. You know, and it's not going to be easy, but the first step is recognizing it for what it is. It's sin. So when you start to throw words around, start to stop and think, where did that word come from? Is that really something that is supported by Scripture, or is that a word that comes from something else that implies something else? You know, when it takes the blame out of us and puts it on something else, it's probably unbiblical. It's probably unbiblical. Yes? I know a particular man who has a very bright mind, um, but I could see what he told me that his mother used to say when he was very little. He says, you're not worth anything. You're never going to get you ruined my life. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's a terrible thing to say. So the example um, given was a mother. It was yeah. Told over over. yeah. Did the mother to her son? Yes. A mother said to her son, um, "Say that again. That that you're not worth anything. You'll never be worth anything. And you ruined my life." Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a terrible thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's a terrible thing to say. I could see it when I watched this person. Yeah. You know, it affected. Right, right. And, and what, what you see, I mean, I mean there's, there's a lot of issues there. I mean, it, it, the issue that you describe is obviously sin in the mother, right? Sin in the mother projecting um, onto her son, you know, and, and saying things that, uh, and obviously, you know, when you hear words like that, you're, those are the words, at least as I listen to them, those are the words of an unregenerate heart. Yeah, what I'm trying to say is, <clears throat> Yeah, well, the way you deal with it is recognizing that you have the same issue that every other human being has ever had in the history of mankind, and that is sin. And that Jesus Christ on the cross, when he died on the cross, he paid for the penalty of those sins. And that um, we are created in the image of God, and uh, we are created in the image of God. And part of the benefit of that salvation is that now we have received a new heart. Um, we have received a new nature. We are a new creation. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to be made more Christ-like. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and really all you're doing, and, and you know what I just said? All, I, all I've said are gospel truths, right? I, I mean, I have, I, you know, it's amazing. Let me say, yeah, it, it's amazing just how often the gospel is the answer to problems. You, we think that the gospel is just for salvation. The gospel helps us overcome a lot of these issues from our past. And so for a man who has gone through this, which, by the way, I mean, I, you know, if I was counseling this gentleman, yeah, if I was counseling this gentleman, I would say, first of all, um, what she said to you is not your fault. That's true. What she said to you is not your fault. No mother should ever say that to their son. No parent should ever say that. No person should say that to another person, right? Um, but... The good news is that if you have put your faith into Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You are a new creation. You have a new heart. And now you are called to glorify God and to walk in the manner that he has called you to walk. That's, that's just gospel truths. I mean, some of us are so much more fortunate to have parents that never do a thing like that. Yeah. No, absolutely. But you, you know what? Some, sometimes some of the strongest believers I've come across are the ones that have been subjected to such unfortunate circumstances. 
You know, I mean, God can take um, any lump of clay and use them for any purpose of, of glory of his own. Uh, and so I, I would say to a person like that, you are not limited by what has happened to you in the past. You are not limited at all. God, okay, if you have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the same future as even the godliest man on earth, all right? Uh, you, you can look forward to a future in heaven with God the Father. You have the same spirit working within you that even your favorite preachers have working in them. You, you know, you have the same word of God at your disposal that any other Christian that has ever lived had at their disposal. You have the power of the Holy Spirit to, to make you more and more like Christ, just like everyone else. And we have this guarantee that even if some of us are moving more slowly, even if some of us have more struggles along the way, that at the time that we are called into the presence of God, we will be glorified. I mean, everyone will be caught up and we will be glorified and made perfect. You know, so we have a wonderful future to look forward to. And the Bible gives us real purpose. It gives us a real divine purpose. And it helps us to forgive the past. And you know what? Uh, you know, and in this case, I don't know if his mother is still alive and whether she is or not is, is not, um, I mean, it's not important to the point I'm about to make. But if she were still alive, you know what? You can pray for her. You know, and now, now that you know these truths, you can live in accordance to these truths rather than what your mother has told you. And then let that be a testimony even to your own mother of the change that has happened to you. And when she sees this change, you can say that it is the Lord Jesus Christ that has helped me become the person that I've become. Because we are all created in the image of God. And it's amazing. Going back to Genesis, and this is the importance of we are created in the image of God. We can't say that any life is insignificant because everyone was created in the image of God. And when you've been saved, Romans 8.29, remember Romans 8.28 says God causes all things to come together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, but... Verse 29 then goes on to say that you have been predestined to become conformed into the image of his son. So if you've been saved, if you've put your faith into Jesus Christ, you have been predestined by God to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, his son. That is your destiny. That is what God has called you to. There is no useless life in Christ. So that's, that's an example of biblical counseling. You know, you just, just share, share the truth of the gospel. Um, number six. And uh, we already really covered number seven. So I'll go number six, man-centered, feelings, needs-oriented. Okay, so a lot of counseling is man-centered. A lot of counseling is man-centered. And uh, I just gave you some examples um, earlier of Acts chapter 10 and how that got butchered into kind of a self-centered kind of message. Um, there's too much counseling that focus upon what you want or what you think you need rather than what God has called you to be. Okay, there's too much focus upon um, what the person wants or, or thinks he or she needs rather than what, what God has called that person to be. It, so there's a difference between being man-centered and being God-centered. And, um, and when we get into this next major section, which will be for, for next time, one of the things that we, we want to emphasize, and this is an emphasis here at this church, is that we want to have a high view of God and a low view of man. A high view of God and a low view of man. In, in other words, and I mentioned this in one of the services recently, that the, the definition of a successful church service is when God is exalted. Plain and simple. If you go to a church service and you see that God is exalted, that was a successful church service. It wasn't about our feelings. It wasn't about our felt needs. It wasn't about our emotions. But whether we saw that God was truly exalted in that church service. 
And so this man-centered kind of counseling really kind of turns worship on its head because worship, when we think about worship, worship is about who God is, not about who we are. You know, in John chapter 4, when Jesus went to the woman at the well, he said, God is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit meaning from the inside and according to truth, obviously according to the truth of who God is. And so Jesus revealed to the woman that God is seeking true worshipers. We are built to worship. We are saved for the purpose of worship. It's just like when the wise men came out of the east to see a young Jesus. You know, what did they say to Herod? We have come to worship the king of the Jews. You know, our purpose is ultimately to worship. And in all the places in the New Testament, you see so many people who should not be worshipped being worshipped. You know, like, uh, you know, the, the Apostle Paul, when he traveled to one area, there was a group of Greeks who, uh, who considered Paul and Silas to be like, um, like Zeus and, uh, and, and Hermes, I think. And they bowed down and worshipped him. And Paul said, no, no, get up, get up, get up. I'm, I'm just a man like you. You know, or when uh, John, in the book of Revelation, John bows down a couple of times to an angel delivering him a message. And the angel said, no, no, get up, get up. Don't worship me. But whenever you see Jesus Christ being worshipped, there is never a rebuke. Because Jesus Christ is to be worshipped. We are worshippers of him. And so when we give counsel that is about us, we lose sight of the fact that it's not about us, it's about him. And the more we put our focus upon God... And his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and less upon us, the more healthy we will be spiritually. Because it's not about us. And that's going to be the, the, the case for a church that grows in Christ, that loves one another. The definition of a church that loves one another is one that puts others' needs before their own. You know, so it's not about us. It's about God. It's about others. And it's amazing just how beautifully the church operates when people have that mindset. But when people make it about themselves, it is amazing how much division occurs. You know, it's the, the book of Judges. You see the phrase um, repeated over and over again. In those days, um, people did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. People did what was right in their own eyes. That's what happens when people get man-centered. Everyone starts doing what they think is right rather than focusing on what God says is right. So we are not to be man-centered. We are to be God-centered. Okay, and then the number seven, psychologized terminology, I think that tied in with uh, number five. And, uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of terminology. I use some, some real obvious examples with disorders and whatnot, um, but you'd be surprised. Um, there, there's a lot of other words that we use that if you examine it, it didn't come from the scriptures. And I'll give you an example, racism. Racism is all the rage today. People are talking about racism. We're talking about whites and blacks and whatnot. Well, according to the Bible, there is only one race, and that's the human race. You know, so really what racism is, it's partiality. It's partiality based on skin color. That's all it is. You know, so I mean, that's, you know, one of those examples where there's a terminology and maybe in this case it's not necessarily psychologized, but it is coming from a different kind of worldview. It's coming from a different kind of um, what I would call a social construct rather than what's, what, what the Bible teaches. So we always want to examine when we can the words that we use and, and figure out where it's coming from and does it, does it, um, does it really fit what the Bible teaches? So that's a constant challenge to us. Any other questions or comments? All right. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer.